As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hello, friends. Welcome back on the show today. Paul Sims perhaps has the most eloquent, mellifluous British accent I've ever had on the show. He is the chief. <laughs> he's the chief executive officer at Impatient Health, and he calls himself a noisy introvert. I love that. He's kind of a provocateur and a rabble rouser like me. I he was here in studio. We we just bonded over a whole bunch of stuff. Paul thinks that patients need pharma to be more daring, experimental, creative, and ambitious. I'm going to go off in the corner, cry in the shower, and drink. Impatient Health is kind of a mix of a think tank and a consultancy. He, he's kind of like a magnet for fellow provocateurs to really think about you know, sick care, health care, the pharma industries. You know, <laughs> you could say all you want. We've come so far. We've got so much more to go. But, you know, he, he does really care about what's going on. He works with designers, strategists, and something like speculative design. And is it possible? Where are the risks? Where are the cracks? Who wants to take the first leap into progress and get over groupthink complacency? All this and more, plus the pandemic, in case you didn't know, has provided humanity with the ultimate catalyst for opportunity. Enjoy the show. I'm known of you for so very long. Okay. You are notorious in a good way. Okay. Not not a notoriety thing, but notorious. <laughs> okay. Different, what did different. I do? No, Want, like, wanted in several states. Well, I've been, I've been told I should know you for a long time, and I'm surprised we've never crossed paths under any we've of done our... We've well done quite well to avoid each other. Yeah, yeah. We've done quite well to avoid Our aversion therapy is, is failing us right now. <laughs> We defined defied the authorities and, and made yeah. it into the same room. But we we finally like lightning struck once mm-hmm. uh, on this LinkedIn post that I wrote because you know we're yeah. both provocateurs. Yes, and I don't get to talk to a lot of provocateurs. You know, at, uh, if you're a fan of the your age is inversely proportional to how many fucks left you have to give. <laughs> yeah, that's the Mark Manson. So yeah. I, I'm at that point now where I'm I'm more polite than I used to be. Oh wow! But you can you've gone full circle. I've gone well. I was polite as a young child. Mm, I was precocious as a as a, a, a elementary school middle mm-hmm. school student. I got polite again in high school. College, I became a little raucous. Mm. Cancer just made me pissed as fuck. Yeah, well, that's what it does, right? Right. You, you've you got nothing to yeah. Worry yeah, about. and I lost my twenties. But when I became an advocate, I was like the best angry asshole you could ask for at the time because everything was like. I mean, Lance was the big thing back mm-hmm. then, but he was 
It was political. Right? Mm-hmm. He knew how to say. He was media trained. He was very cautious in what he said. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, fuck all this. God damn. Like, who's this guy? Like, and they put a mic in front of me on a show. That's how I got started being a strategic <laughs> asshole. That's the best in a startup story I think I've heard in a while. <laughs> <laughs> they put a mic in front of this guy and he started the charity. Yeah, that's kind of how it worked. <laughs> yeah, just uh... – Sorry. To Are you anyone. checking your phone? No, no, no while yeah, exactly. We're I'm bored. Doing no, <laughs> I'm just trying to put it on Do Not Disturb because people keep buzzing me. That's it's okay. I, kind of annoying. I, I, tell me how you really feel. <laughs> He's literally checking his phone. Look, I've got it on Do Not Disturb. <laughs> I'm even showing you the screen now. <laughs> but I say I'm more polite because, like, I can be a little more douchebaggy, but in a professional way. Right. And channeling what I think I'm most impressed with about your your tone and your attitude and your approach these days is akin to what I feel too, which is I come from consumer. Right. I don't come from patient. Mm-hmm. I used to work in regular consumer brand marketing, mm-hmm. selling things like, you know, Texaco and Pepsi, Frito-Lay, Doritos, Dodge. Like I, that was my world. Mm-hmm. I ran like new media IT, creative brand design desktop for that stuff. So I wasn't a client, but I understood how do you get people to buy shit. Mm. So when I approach anything, I think like a consumer. And yet here we are, browbeating this, what I call it, a uh, flaccid platitude called patient, two syllables that mean nothing these mm-hmm, days. Mm-hmm. And I love that you are from this same consumer perspective. Can we be customers as patients? What do you think? Okay, so this is a, a much posed question. I reckon that in the US, uh, being, I would say, probably the most commercial, commercially oriented country on earth, okay? Like everything is every wall is adorned with with some kind of commercial that calling uh, someone a customer is almost almost as a bit of a rite of passage. Whereas we kind of soft Brits who prefer not to have billboards everywhere and who think that that uh, you know any form of advertising is the spawn of the devil actually see the word customer as something slightly frightening. So on the one hand. Yes, absolutely. We need to damn well have those customer-oriented skills and actually treat people as someone who have a preference and a choice and the freedom and could go anywhere and you actually have to do something to make them want to come towards you. That is a good frame of reference. But the word customer also, just from my old-worldy, britty kind of background, also frightens me slightly that we're turning into this consumerist society. And frankly, there should be this empty and open space over there in the wilderness where never a brand name shall be found. So that's I find myself slightly kind of on a knife edge with that one. When I was thinking of starting the nonprofit, I really wanted to, like, what is disruption in 2006? And I read the book Disruption by Jean-Marie Rougeau, who mm-hmm. created Chayette in France in the 1800s. And uh, I remember reading something in there back then about how uh, media in England is different than media in the U.S. And I reread it when I went to London a couple of years ago because I wanted to get a sense of what I should expect to see. Uh-huh. Your commercials are so much better than our commercials. What do you define better? Well, they're not outlandish. They're not like, you know, uh, attention-grabbing, quick. And interestingly enough, one of the few differences between media in the U.S. and media abroad we are very direct to camera facing in this country. Mm. Eye contact on television. People walking and talking, selling you something while they're walking and talking. 
that doesn't exist in your media. And I love it because it's like, this is toothpaste. It's good. Buy it. <laughs> yeah, but have you noticed that we Brits also don't do eye contact generally anyway? Right. I'm sitting right across your table right now and I feel myself melting by the fact <laughs> that you're looking at me. <laughs> so, you know. Well, I have a face for radio, so you're doing a good job. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Uh, if only your viewers could see the degree of melt that I've been oh, catching right, right now. They well, you are like nine feet tall. Like, like, like you are much shorter on Zoom. <laughs> yes, Zoom is the great leveler on multiple dimensions, yes. and I have been frightening quite a lot of people as as uh, you know restrictions have have reduced. Yeah, uh, it's really quite quite funny. Um, sometimes I can frighten entire groups. You know, I turn up an event or something like that, right. and, and they're all used to sort of seeing that, and they're all like, "Whoa, whoa, mama, mama, save me!" <laughs> Wait, so when were you first exposed to the stupidity of our country's marketing in in, in, in healthcare? <laughs> Well, I I think it's pretty insidious. I mean, I came over here as a as a probably I don't know. I think I did the standard Disneyland trip at the age of maybe eleven or twelve, rite of passage that it was. And uh, yeah, I think I was being, I was freaked out not only by turning on the TV and seeing what you see. Oh my God! Like, firstly, commercial breaks can last like. 10 minutes, 20 yeah. minutes, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. That is, that, There's a law in the UK that, that says you have to have a certain amount of actual programming versus, right. you know, so that was a, something that freaked me out. The other thing that freaked me out was sports games that are designed to fit with the TV schedule. So they actually have breaks during the real live games right. in order to accommodate TV. That that also freaked me out. And then, yeah, just the number of, of drug ads. And I was just exposed to it as an 11-year-old. It was like, whoa, what the hell is all of this stuff? And then, you know, more and more and, you know, celebrity endorsement for for erectile dysfunction drugs i've never quite been able to fully comprehend or understand that it, it doesn't we are seem... a very easily manipulated society <laughs> yeah and the other thing that just freaked me out was just common conversation about which drugs you're taking like it, it's it's part of conversation it's not and that's maybe because of the fact it's out there on tv etc like people would just talk about what drugs they're on in the corridor like no way would a brit do that right no way would a brit would ever admit having taken any drug ever and i mean <laughs> i've been working in pharma for 20 years and i don't think i've ever mentioned any medication that i'm on <laughs> to <Right>. anyone <laughs> right in all of that time. Well, what I find really interesting, I, again, thinking of like advertising, marketing, branding, it's the Honda Accord, right? It's not the Merck Katruda. Like, I never understood why they don't associate the company that makes the drug with the person that needs to take the drug. There, But that begets this idea, like when patients do talk about their medications, they're on, they talk about brand. They don't talk about Merck. Yeah. And this is like this lost art of understanding how people do communicate in this country. Because mm -hmm. you're either a cancer patient, a uh, long-term survivor, caregiver. It's not like you're on or, or you have breast cancer, right? right. There's like 80,000 breast cancers and 60,000 different products and drugs you can take for it. Mm. And yet they're still like splashing crap everywhere to help you know shit exists and to talk to your doctor. Mm. Should people really know what to say to their doctor when they enter that no. shit happens store? I think it's almost abusive to the doctor in a, in a weird way. I like, you know, why should you walk into a doctor's office and say, I want X? Surely that that very premise in itself is, is in a kind of denigrating the the doctor in many ways. And yes, I really, I mean, it's funny. Uh, at the same time, of course, patients should be their own agents of their own health. They should own their own health. They should know what's available and know how to navigate the healthcare system. And that's almost requires a, a, a separate degree here in the US particularly. Mm. So on the one hand, yeah, of course, we, we, we need that. We need people to feel energized and motivated and own, own everything to do. And that includes drugs. Drugs is just one small part of it. 
but to then expect that um, that that you know everything and the doctor does not, I think that that tips the balance in a very strange and unusual way. Is there too much consumer power? Is that a thing in the world? Is it is it is the customer always right? Is the patient always right? Is there a limit to that? I think that's an interesting question. Um, well, just go back to that idiot that spilled hot coffee on herself from McDonald's and like she won the lawsuit. Right, right. right. Yeah. The, that. the customer isn't always right. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> You're just avoiding drama by giving them what they want and making them go away. But I agree yeah. with you. I agree with you. Like this whole idea of like, here's a drug. You might want to be on it. Go tell your doctor. Mm. Your doctor should be the authority in that situation. But if you want to bring agency there, it's here's what I care about. Mm. Help me live the life I want and recommend what I need to make those goals for myself. Right. Or turn on um, voice memo when you get to the office. That's not clinical. That's just a nice thing to do. Yeah. See, and you can do those things without necessarily knowing the name of a drug. Right. You know, you can figure out what you want in life. You can figure out where you want to go and you can articulate that to your physician without having to say, I want X. So so what bet did you lose post-pandemic to start this company? Because it's I look at it, it's pretty radical by in terms of like how radical healthcare can be. I was going to say, it's not radical at all, but yeah. But I mean, like it, <laughs> it's, it's contrapuntal to like the straight line that is just this uh, metastatic complacency mm-hmm. that this group think that I just revile. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I want to get but, to the whole. But you know, I mean, it's very easy to be somebody working for the pharmaceutical industry and to do never risk anything in your life and yet earn a very good above average salary and and live your life uh, feeling like you've made a strong impact. And it's it's complacency is is part of the ticket, right? It's 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 almost built in. My well, job is to raise the temperature and to make us all realize we're on a burning platform because, my God, this industry is a young one, not a mature one. We have so far to go before we have conquered actual healthcare. Um, and, you know, we see big tech coming into our industry. Why? Because we're not as a pharmaceutical uh, industry, you know, because, because there is so much more to health than just the drug. Right. And that's unfortunately all we know how to do. Wait, that sounds so controversial. <laughs> how <laughs> dare you, sir? Yeah, well, I think everyone knows it, um, but uh, I don't think um, I don't think anyone denies this stuff. It doesn't mean, however, that they look up outside of their very narrow field of vision and do anything about it. So, right. so my job here is to raise the temperature, to not allow anyone to coast, to not allow anyone to to work in their own little fiefdom, because actually we all know that silos are dangerous. We all know that. Um, that just focusing on, you know, we could be rearranging the deck tiers on the Titanic for, for all we know in, in many of the organizations mm-hmm. we work in. I mean, I don't throw the employees under the bus. These are human beings that are in this job. A, you probably pay the bills and, and make, make a living. But most of them, I mean, I, I don't want paint broad brushes and make enemies here on the show. But they're people that care. People that work for they these companies have care. kids with leukemia and family that died. But So I don't blame the people or their job descriptions. The complacency comes from risk averseness and just we're just so used to doing it this way. Why should we think any differently? So who should we blame then? Because I, I think I do blame the employees. I'm sorry. I no, do. I blame the lawyers. You blame the lawyers. Okay. Yes. Because, because risk averseness comes from litigatable actions and FDA slaps. Yeah, but do you not find that we overinterpret the law? Like, do you, what's weird for me no, is lawyers that every pharma company, law. maybe, 
Yeah, maybe. Every pharma company, though, interprets the regulations differently. You find some companies that are more relaxed in certain areas and some that aren't. So why is it so subjective? Why, why is you know doing the same thing at one company against the internal law, shall we say, and completely acceptable at another? Why can uh, I work with some companies and I can work with patients in certain countries and then I go and work for another company and I can't work with patients in that same country just because five years ago they made they did something in that country that was controversial and they got their you know hands wrapped or whatever it right. is. And that suddenly means that country is closed off to being part of the patient advocacy you know, spectrum for that company. Well, the cautionary is also that they have shareholders. And yes. they can't risk any reputational, you know, they can't risk any risk mm -hmm. because at the mercy of this might dip their stock prices and upset the people point, that- At what point, though, at what point do you become so bland and riskless that you actually become, you start hurting yourself? Wait, have because you met today's pharma is... companies? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, I have. And the funny thing is that in certain instances, again, it's it's a subjective way. Some of them show a little bit of humanity. Some of them realize that they actually have to be humans, not corporate brands, to have any form of interest. Like um, I look at some CEOs and they just get no traction whatsoever because they are robotic. They have been finessed to within an inch of their life by corporate comms and they can't communicate to people anymore. They, they, they speak as if as if being pulled by strings and puppeteers. And even when you talk to the people who pull those strings, the people in corporate comms, they're like, yeah, I totally get it, but it's just kind of what I have to do in my job. Yeah, I, I yearn for freedom. I yearn to be able to take the shackles off and be human and, and actually speak to people like like real people, uh, but, but it, it doesn't happen. On that light note, <laughs> let's take a quick break. Have we started? I think we're still here. <laughs> okay. All right, I was well, just having a lovely chat with you. Th that's right. I love the show. You're great. This is fantastic. All right. We'll be right back. Okay. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
in stalking all that is you. Mm-hmm. I love your like seven syllable boilerplate as a noisy introvert. All right, okay. Did you make that up or did someone just call you that well, way angrily? Well, I made up. So I left my previous company uh, early in the pandemic. What was it like? April, May 2020. And I needed something to say before I'd figured out what I was going to do. And I wrote Pharma Provocateur mm. on there. And I put all of two seconds thought into it. And then people started going, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And that was fine. But then people very much kind of almost uh, expected me to be provocative in absolutely oh. everything I did. And some people almost thought that I, I was becoming a bit of a sort of charlatan, just a kind of bull in a china shop, I guess. And eventually I decided that considering it was an accident that I'd written that in the first place, I needed something else. And I just thought, well, you know what? I used to run big events for a living and that was terrible because I used to have to talk to everyone. Do you hate, hate people like me? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I like uh, a person. Yeah. People. Yeah. yeah. Uh, networking was like my worst thing ever. And yet I created networking products for a living. And I just, you know, all I craved really was to be in a dark room figuring stuff out on my own. That that was true. a bit like you in your man cave. And yes. Yeah, kind of where we are now. That's why I kind of walked in and thought, my God, I belong. We are the same person. <laughs> exactly. No one knew it. I'm before. just half your height. <laughs> You're just an extension. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, I just thought I'm an introvert. I'm just going to say so. Um, but I am quite noisy because I say what I, I have a low boredom threshold. I find there's a lot of crap spoken in our industry. A lot of also non-statements um, of exactly the type I just described with people being wooden and, and um, over-processed mm-hmm. <laughs> in, their, in their public uh, communication. And I just thought, I don't have to follow any rules. I'm going to be a noisy introvert. I would say the unsilent minority would be us, right? <laughs> um, I have to steal that one for, for you next could be time. The unsilent, <laughs> you're chairman of the unsilent minority club. <laughs> I love that one. I mean, there's just so many layers to go down in all that you are and everything you do. But I love that you do think of the word consumer as much as that is an American trope, and that's how I have to lean into it. And you have such an incredible perspective as being, you know, not from this country and having like, how the hell is it this way in this country? It's so like bass backwards here. But I, I have to think that if you're really going to need I'll say American voters who happen to be patients as citizen and consumer, if you need them to be educated – but they're going into like healthcare is a retail store you never want to shop in. I always t- I always say that like every show I say I can't wait to get cancer and listen to that Katruda podcast. Right? No one <laughs> anticipates needing this shit. So how do they know how to protect themselves against the mercy of honestly an entire system built by design to place profits over outcomes and yet better outcomes would normally make more profit? That's a really difficult question. Um, I'll see myself out now. Yeah, I know, exactly. Jeez, I'm just going to sit here in silence while I ponder that for five <laughs> minutes before I, can, before I can say anything. Repeat it for me one more time. We can cut this out if we need to. No, it's fine. All right. <laughs> for the cheap seats across from me. <laughs> yeah, please. The whole point is that when you're a consumer, mm-hmm. you are usually in charge of your choices. Yes, indeed. And you can research like the TV's on sale here, Black Friday's here, whatever yeah. it is. 
And yet healthcare is not a market where you get to choose what you think is best for you, which in some cases is good. You want a doctor to make the best choice for you. But oftentimes, you know, there's something on this shelf that you don't know about, or you can't afford the thing you'd like to have, or something just shows up that you couldn't possibly anticipate. You know, you buy a car, you know you get an accident, there's insurance for that. But your insurance company, again, USA conversation, always decides what's best for you, regardless of what you think is best for you. Yeah, so what you're saying is, I believe that thinking consumer in the same way that we described a moment ago is always a healthy thing to do, whether you have the agency of choice or not. Clinical trials should be designed not just to be patient-centric, but to be patient preferential. You know, we talk about cure as a care option a lot these days, and uh, sorry, trial as a cure as a care option. And what we absolutely require, therefore, is to make this thing preferential by design. And whether the consumer has a choice or not, we have to make it something they want to do because actually, you're wrong. You're wrong because we still have a choice ultimately. We have a choice whether or not to bother getting up out of bed and look after ourselves. We have a choice whether to take that medicine or not. We have a choice whether to go for that surgery, be it life-saving or not. You know the um, adherence rates on uh, blood transfusion medication are low, despite that being the very thing that will keep you alive. So the truth is that we do have choice, even when faced with the starkest black and white life or death walk off the edge of a cliff type decisions. And we better start as an industry hitting um, consumer preferences. Like the other conversation that happens every day is, oh, look at what's happened to the consumer during the pandemic and how you know the, the, the content preferences have all been shaped by Netflix. And therefore, we, when we are providing education to patients or to HCPs, we have to hold ourselves to the same standards. I actually agree with all that stuff because the truth is that health information, if it's not engaging in any way, you won't read it very, very much. And I don't say, I'm not saying that all scientific research has to somehow become sensationalist all of a sudden right. and grip you like a journalist might. Of course not. Um, but if... The, you know the the number of people and the amount of engagement they have with a subject. If that is n completely ignored, and we are not open minded into how the hell we produce that 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 engagement, then we are always going to produce lesser of an effect that we could have done. So I think it saves well to be mindful of consumer preference in everything we do, even if it is a life or death situation where you think the patient has no choice. So I I understood most of that. <laughs> Mr. Smarty Pants. That's a record. <laughs> no, the part that really just stuck out there was like it, it, this, the baselessness of ennui that belies every pharma commercial. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, again, you could throw anyone under the bus for that. I think the creative is great. It's well produced. But how is there so much tone deafness in what I call like pay, spray, prey strategies? For the, exactly the same reason we said before. Companies can get away with something that is not particularly interesting. It will, you know, cover half their market. It will get enough people through the door. It will hit their targets. And the truth is that America has been, I'm going to say, this is going to sound really rude, uh, a fat society. And by that, I don't mean fat as in the usual. No, I represent that. <laughs> I don't mean fat as in uh, the, the, the amount of... Uh, 
uh, of fatty substances in your body. I'm talking about the, the the margins that we've had on 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 drugs and in in many many products, but particularly those in pharmaceuticals. We did not actually have to try very hard until relatively recently. I was having a conversation over this last night at dinner with um, the head of sales for a major top 10 pharma company here in the US. And this is exactly what he said. We didn't have to try. And he actually said, so this guy was actually um, from Europe, uh, like me. He'd come over to the US six years ago. And we Europeans always think that the US is is ahead of everything. Like you used to get, you used to, we used to get, you know, just even silly things like the fact that movies used to come out first in the US. Right. And then like two months later, they'd come out, uh, you know, when, when the whole world, had, when the US was now bored of it, we'd finally get access. We've always had this idea that the US is the most advanced and the most ahead society. This guy said, no, coming to the US and working in commercial pharma was like stepping back 10 years because of the simple fact that it hadn't had to have got as sophisticated as it had in Europe. You hadn't had to work with the margins and the lean situations that they've had to elsewhere. And as a result, haven't had to sort of push it, been able to get away with it. And I think a large amount of that culture still pervades today in DTC advertising and probably in many, many other aspects of our industry. Did any one particular commercial show up where you just like did a spit take because it was so stupidly funny? <laughs> I Okay, I've been in the US now for a day and a half. And I cannot bear to turn the TV on. And by the way, this is during World Cup season, and I That's still true. haven't turned on the TV. That, for a European, requires serious, I'm, serious you know, restraint. I'm not a sports guy. I don't watch <laughs> the, the World Cup. I mean, you know, being taped as we – being the, the World Cup is happening now as we, yes. we we take this conversation. I would love to get some – you know how they, they always read like the Super Bowl ads because that's the time. I, I can imagine the World Cup has similar – ads going on about just no i mean i watched the bbc no ads at all no in america oh right right if, yeah. if we're watching well, I can't the world turn cup on the TV here. but i mean how many i'm curious like because you know they know who watches these sports so like if there's a uh, a drug ad during the super bowl it's probably like like some kind of like statin <laughs> i want to know like so kindly put do americans are, are americans more fit who watch the world cup like there's no pharma ads during the world yeah. cup <laughs> It's ironic, isn't it? Those yes. who are watching the most sport, not necessarily doing the most. You can tell a lot by the demographic, by yeah. what drug ads are run during it. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 insane. I, I literally cannot turn the TV on while I'm here. Oh, it's terrible. I just, I just, I could watch maybe a little bit of Netflix because it's obviously. Well, what's even scarier but... in this country is the ads are meant for you. <laughs> that right. was like someone else watching that TV show voice. is not that was going to see the same for ads. you in the same as Hitler needs you. Yeah, <laughs> Hitler trending again for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> the, when you see ads on your phone on digital products, they're there because it knows who you are. TV's different because TV's you know pain spray, but this whole notion of when a drug ad pops up for you on Twitter or on Facebook, they know that you might want to have this drug. Like, I don't need blah, blah, blah at all. There's nothing wrong with me. Well, they think you do. Mm. Yeah, and say it enough times and you start believing it. I think exactly. that happens with anything. You had uh, written a uh, predictions review in 2021 for this year. Right. Um, I, I killed a lot of trees printing this out because I can't read PDFs on a tiny monitor. Um, I, I barely got through it because it's just so comprehensive. I mean, you were really bored during the pandemic, clearly. <laughs> but one thing stuck out. And I'm the, the very first thing in this prediction is that a pharma company will buy the consumer. I'm like, there's that word again. What did you mean by that? 
gosh, I wrote that one such a long time ago. I barely even remember, but um, I think fake that, it till you make. Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I will. Maybe I should read it again. You've got it in front of you. I can't see it. Should I just um, read it? Yeah, yeah, just read it for me. I'm going to read it verbatim here. <laughs> This was the idea that Big Pharma is increasingly focused on becoming Ferrari, i.e. developing only specialty products, highly priced, designed for a small segment of the population. But the pandemic would expose the neglected middle, the chronic disease areas that required more attention and could be delivered by those outside R&D. We have one listener left, by the way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you, listener. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, mom. She's my (laughs) listener. She's the only one left. And if you're listening and you're not the mom yeah, of our right. host, then you're going <laughs> to be slightly mom, free. I, I don't know. 23 new mom might disagree yeah. with me. But again, th- this is the same okay. conversation. Yeah. So, um, well, we all know the pharmacy's industry has pivoted towards specialty and even orphan products, which is fantastic if you are the sufferer of said specialty or orphan right. disease. But the truth is the health burden is <clears throat> elsewhere. It's... Uh, it's a strange world, isn't it? Where every sing- I, That's why I call it making a Ferrari. It's as if the entire automotive industry decided to make a Ferrari. And Ferraris are perfectly good cars. You know, they go fast. They look great. They, you know, probably make you look uh, 10 years younger. But <clears throat> they... Very niche. Yeah. But yeah, not everyone is suited to a Ferrari. And I think the reason I use this analogy, which some people obviously don't like, um, particularly those who are suffering from said diseases is because we've lost our uh, sense of where need actually is, where the population actually needs. And by the way, there are obviously more people outside the US than there are inside it. And the the great health need, of course, is is elsewhere in in most of the world. Uh, I think it's it's a bit, bit sad that our industry can only make money out of niche populations and niche diseases. I think that says a lot not right. just Foolish. about our industry, but also about the system it operates in. Foolish armchair response is, you know, when I was diagnosed a billion years ago, there were four drugs. Mm-hmm. That was it. That was the, the platinums right. and radiation. That was it. Everything Sidney Farber invented was still there in the 90s. And now there's a billion things based on what I used to call cancer geography is dead. And now your DNA geography is what matters most. But when you're making a drug for a rare disease community and there's only... 3,000 of them, mm-hmm. that's the Ferrari they need, but they'll only benefit from that Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Is that analogous to what we're saying? Because like that seems to be where the trends are yeah. now. If you're part of that 3,000 or whatever it, uh, whatever it is, then of course you're going to be grateful. But what about the 3 million over there? Right. You know, what about the fact that obesity still eludes us so heavily? Cardiovascular diseases, you know, brains, disease of the brain. You know, there are so many things that that we're not focusing on that we actually need to figure out a way. And I'm not blaming the industry because the industry is a product of where are the opportunities, the commercial opportunities, and if they're going to exist in specialty. I just think it's kind of crazy that 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 we have a system that doesn't reward anything except the drug in a way like it's very hard to get reimbursed for uh digital health products which we all want to to focus on it's very hard to get uh, reimbursed for for other things that could move the needle so we talk about all focusing on health outcomes but are we truly i don't think that the reimbursement system has basically kept up with health need well that's a whole different podcast 
Yeah, I'll book myself in for that one next I time. Would, I will <laughs> drink an entire bottle of bourbon before that show. <laughs> it might be necessary I before think, that show. And it's not reimbursable either. <laughs> That's out-of-pocket bourbon. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You could, you could expense that one with some legitimacy. Yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff you're doing now is because of the impact of the pandemic, which, you know, we're still trying to figure our way out of this, and we're not even over with it yet. As much as Florida thinks it never happened, it's still there. But, you know, impatient health. I love, again, I'm a big fan of like punny puns, out of patience, impatient health, you know, we the patients, you know, be patiently waiting, you know, all things. Yeah, it's great. But, you know, where did the incentive come out of your brain to say, I'm doing this now? Boredom. That's the uh, best answer. <laughs> Boredom and just, and I don't mean boredom as in sitting around, I've never been bored for even a minute in my life. I mean, boredom with the lack of anything that inspired me in our industry at all, the, the boredom of just always focusing on the vanilla. Like, just, we are just vanilla, 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 aren't we, as, a, as an industry? Mm -hmm. And um, it, any great innovator, I say that in inverted commas, that we strike. <laughs> inverted that, commas. Inver yeah, so like a, a Henry Ford will say, if I had asked the consumer, they were, would have wanted a, farm, a faster horse. You know, uh, A Bob Dylan will say, never play to the gallery. You've just got to go out there and be yourself. It's the only way to make it work. Steve Jobs obviously famously did not rely on uh, heavy market research. Uh, I just think that people don't know what they want. And we take no effort to decide for ourselves what we should give people. And okay, so this is, I can hear the people screaming. I can smell and, your I can brain smell the, the way I can, I can smell the, 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 uh, the angry tweets coming in. We have to lead with solutions. I call it customer leadership. We have to lead with the, with, with the first idea. We have to do a bit what the auto automotive industry does. The automotive industry makes concept cars, these weird flying, bizarre, how the hell does that even drive type mm -hmm. stuff that will never be sold. But they actually build it. They spend millions of dollars building these, these things. Why? Because only then could you get a reaction. Do you get a reaction from a consumer, customer, patient, whatever, uh, that says, oh my God, that's ugly. Oh my God, that's cool. Oh my God, imagine you could turn the seats on the way in if you've got a self-driving car and have like almost a, a sort of people, people looking at each other yeah. in, a, in a car. Concepts, you know, concepts that don't exist in the mainstream yet, but could well do. And I just think if we're, we're if we ask patients everything that we do, then we'll never do anything beyond the vanilla. We have to try creating with the brain, the incredible brain power and the incredible resources we have within this industry. We should be able to put concepts out there that are really interesting. You know, I always say if Elon Musk can get us excited about batteries, then we surely as or, hell. Or boring underground. Or boring underground, and even calling a company the boring, boring company, company. Then, my God, why can't we in this industry, in supposedly the most emotive industry of all, uh, supposedly the most innovative industry of all, get people excited about the future of healthcare? Why can't we provide a vision, even if we're not providing an actual object that people could use, a vision of what healthcare could look like? That's the type of communication I would like to see our leaders or even anyone in our organizations offering. 
I think that, you know, why should it be up to, you know, tech companies to give us a vision of the future? Okay, you know, why should Mark Zuckerberg dream, paint his picture of the, the metaverse, you know, crap as it was? Yes. Why the bloody hell shouldn't Pharma paint a picture of what the future could look like and, right. and dress it up with, with a nice video to try and bring it to life? Well, Paul Sims, you don't need a soapbox because you're already, what, six foot six or something <laughs> like that? Um, I, I see this table. as an... I see this show as an ongoing series of Matt, not V. Paul, but maybe Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was a movie. Yeah. I, I love this conversation. There's so much more we can unpack the next time we're here. But just you know, exiting this conversation. Final thoughts. Um, if is there one idea, there probably isn't. What does pharma being more daring mean? If there's a short answer to that question, I just said there's no short answer will be out. Okay. Uh, I can actually answer that quite surely. I would say being scientific. I will explain that though. Scientists experiment. The science, we think of scientists like the boffins at the front of the classroom, the geeks that, 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 that keep it safe. No. Scientists uh, thrive off their curiosity and they never make assumptions. They test everything. They are experimental. I think that we need to be scientific outside of the R&D department. I think we need to be experimental. I think we need to try stuff. We call ourselves scientific companies on damn well should try and be scientific companies then. And we should not just be going for the safe option every single time. Paul Sims, you heard it here. The voice, the height, the face for radio like me. Chief executive at Impatient Health. All the links in the episode description. This man, you got to know him. You got to love him. I fell in love. He walked in the door. He's here. Paul, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And frankly, if you want to kind of say that, just you know, stand in front of me and say that as I go around yes. the world. That would be really appreciated. Today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. See you next time, friends. Thanks for listening. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us, and we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.